people that need more help get barriers instead, just one after the other. I don't know how many people I've talked to. When I tell them that last summer I traveled around South America, they go, but you're a felon. I thought we couldn't get a passport. And it breaks my heart because people just believe that. We've been told for so long, like you're nothing, you're worthless, you're a criminal, you're a felon. We internalize that and then we don't even try. And that's, I think that's the point of their game. They don't even want us to try. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. When Morgan Godwin was 24, she sold her best friend Justin a gram of heroin. This wasn't out of the ordinary. Both of them often used together and hooking each other up was essentially seen as a favor to keep one another from experiencing withdrawal sickness. But this one time proved to be fatal. Justin would later be found dead from an overdose, and Morgan was on the hook for supplying it, getting caught up in the wave of drug-induced homicide cases where prosecutors go after users, who are often friends and loved ones of the overdose victim. Morgan was convicted of quote, drug delivery resulting in death by the federal government and spent five years incarcerated at the Dublin Federal Prison outside of Oakland for Justin's death. Since she's been released, Morgan has used her experience and voice to push back against America's ultra-punitive response to everyday social problems like addiction. And she's raising awareness about drug-induced homicide prosecutions. I'm Zachary Siegel, and you're listening to Narcotica. Morgan is joining us today from Tijuana, Mexico, where she is volunteering with Previn Casa, a local syringe access program responding to the pandemic. We're going to be discussing her experience going through the system and what she's been doing to prevent others from experiencing the same draconian mistreatment often sold to the public as a necessary punishment to, quote, send a message to dealers. Morgan, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. And with me today is Troy Farah, as always, beaming in from the high desert near Joshua Tree in California. Troy, what's up? Hey, how's it going? Okay, so we'll just jump in and, you know, right away the first question, I think we should be asking everyone about right now is how are you doing? What's, what does it feel like to be alive right now? Um, I mean, it feels good. It's always a good day to be alive, especially when so easily it could have gone the other way. I think about that a lot because I was always the one to overdose. Like I'd earned the nickname of fallout queen. And there was periods where like Justin wouldn't even hook me up because he was afraid I was going to die because I just kept overdosing. But then I, you know, I survived and he died and I went to prison. And, and so, you know, I, I keep that with me, but it's not like I ended up addicted uh, to heroin on accident. My baseline mental health is not great. <laughs> and so the pandemic has been challenging. I'm not going to lie. It's been really challenging. My mental health has not, has not been great. Um, trying to just, you know, get involved with Preven Casa service to the community, overdose prevention, and that sort of stuff just kind of keeps me going. But yeah, the future's super uncertain and, and the world's dealing with a lot. 
And so it's, it's been tricky for me, but I'm doing okay. It's good to hear that you're doing okay. Um, <laughs> kind of curious how, how Mexico is doing with the whole pandemic thing. And, and what is syringe access like there? Um, it's, I, I assume it's a little different from the U.S. <laughs> so last year, the beginning of 2009, the Mexican president cut all funding to all NGOs, ostensibly to reduce corruption. And so that meant overnight that the Prevancasa lost all of their funding, all of their funding that came from the federal government, which was the majority. So all of a sudden it just became like a game of like hustling up enough syringes for the week. And naloxone is a controlled substance here. It's fairly impossible to get. It is like sold somewhere here, but it's super expensive. So it gets like smuggled in from the United States. So they send us like fentanyl tainted heroin and then the United States smuggles in naloxone so people don't overdose and die. Um, so there's extreme uh, resource poverty. So like when I first started, we were open twice a week and twice a week we were giving out three syringes to uh, the clients. And you know me, I would use a 10 pack of syringes in a day when, when I was using. So I, I just couldn't, I just can't imagine. But it is what it is because there's no government funding for harm reduction whatsoever. And there's also no government funding for like the migrant shelters. So now the um, United States has the remain in Mexico policy. And there's these shelters to house mostly Central American migrants, but they have no federal funding. So like the municipality and the state give a little bit. It's in incredible resource poverty and really poor infrastructure. There's no like clean drinking water. So the people that I work with um, that are mostly homeless, they, they just have no access to clean water. It's like nothing I've ever seen before. So that puts them in an incredibly precarious position for the pandemic. So it's just, you know, not new, just worse, like everything um, that COVID has shown us. It just really exacerbated structural vulnerabilities. Uh, they did open up a COVID shelter for people who do not have a home to isolate in, which is actually really cool. I don't know of anything like that happening in my city where I'm from in Portland. Um, and it's right next to Prevencasa. So we, we are supposed to like detect the patients that have COVID and then try to convince them to isolate in the shelter. And then they'll have, they have like their own little room and meals provided for them. But the situation is not good here. There's a lot of infection. Yeah, clearly. Uh, wow. Yeah, that sounds like some really intense work around just COVID itself. And, and then on, on the harm reduction front, something I've, I've always wondered about Mexico is what are the stigmas there around drug use and harm reduction? Like here in the U.S., we have conservatives who will sort of like run a, a needle exchange out of town or a lot of like the sort of talking points against harm reduction are like this is enabling drug users and we they need to hit bottom and you're preventing that like it, does that sort of same uh anti-harm reduction rhetoric pop up in mexico you know i'm not Mexican, and I've only been here for three months, so I'm not super sure what the stigma is. I know harm reduction is just not a popular concept here, and that you know people who use drugs are heavily, heavily stigmatized. But there's very few even harm reduction programs, so that's probably indicative of like a deeper societal attitude that is against them. 
Uh, a lot of the treatment centers are like pseudo-religious, really abstinence-based, like cold turkey detox. And so, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of similarity. I know the neighbors at, uh, around Prevencasa um, are not super pleased with the location um, of the syringe exchange. But as to like the deeper Mexican sentiments, I'm not exactly sure. Okay, well, let's, uh, you know, kind of come back to your story, you know, the whole case and the investigation and, and how the state kind of painted you as a predatory dealer. For listeners who maybe aren't totally familiar with your story, they may be good to hear it in your own words. Yeah, so I was 24 years old. I'd been um, addicted to heroin for years at that point. And just like really just like buying a half gram a day just to sustain. Most of the time I, I delivered pizza. So I would just buy however much drugs my tips allowed me to buy and make it to the next day. And then my mom died suddenly of a prescription drug overdose, which was very shocking to me because I was the one who used drugs, not her. And so I found my mom dead from an overdose. And uh, my God, I can't imagine what that must be like you know and then the worst part was you know I, I called the paramedic i had got my emt license so like i you know tried to resuscitate her i know i did my best in that but then the cops were coming and i walked back out into the living room and my rigs and my scale and just my dope stuff was everywhere so my mom's dead in the bedroom and there i am on probation for possession of heroin you know two minutes ago i recognized my mom died and then i was having to try to like hide my stuff so i didn't go to jail the night my mom died yeah which just like says everything that's wrong with like calling 911 right yeah <laughs> so that was horrible um and then three months later i got a life insurance settlement my mom served 20 years in the air force. So even though, you know, we were flat broke most of our lives, she did get that life insurance payment. And so I got it. And for the first time in my life, I wasn't buying a half gram, you know, I could buy an eight ball or a quarter ounce, which, you know, and I thought that all my problems would be solved because I thought, you know, if I just had enough heroin, I could make the pain go away. And that it didn't work like that. You know, I just kept doing more and more. I got my tolerance up to four five, six grams a day. Whew, that that's high. I mean, I, I, I don't think. Maybe I'll just put it bluntly. If I had access to like a a lot of money when I was using, I would probably be dead. Yeah, you know, in the, in that frame of mind, I was incredibly suicidal, um, and so I would like take all the benzos I could find, and then do as much heroin as I could get to fit in a syringe, which I figured out was about 0.7 grams of of tar and I and I would wake up every time just like so mad that I woke up because I wanted to die I really wanted to die and uh, so there I was sitting on my couch you know I haven't showered in two weeks I want to die life is terrible everything is shit and um, I get a text from my friend Justin and I hadn't heard from him since the night before my mom died the night before she died he had called me in a panic because he had got stranded at the bus stop after the bus had stopped running and he was dope sick and I'd gone and picked him up and he spent the night at my house with my mom. Him and my mom knew each other. My mom was always cool with Justin. And then the very next day my mom died and I hadn't seen him since that. And uh, he just asked for a gram. And because you know I could, because I'd been buying 
quarter ounces at a time, which really only lasted me a day. But I also lived with my drug dealer, like he was my roommate. So it just didn't matter. So I was, so I just said, yeah, come over. I got you, you know, like, yeah, man, I got what you need. And, uh, he came over and I, I sold him a gram of heroin and he went back home. I asked him to like stay and kick it. He didn't want to, he had to go. The next day he texted me again. He said, can I get another gram? I was like, yeah. He said, can I get two grams? I'm like, yeah, whatever. It doesn't matter. I live with my drug dealer. And then he asked me to deliver it. And I was like, hell no. Cause I was super suicidal and depressed and haven't showered in two weeks. And there's no way I'm leaving my house. And then like way later that night, my front door just burst open and it was like a no knock warrant and they were pointing guns in my face and screaming at me. Um, and I found out that Justin had actually died the day before and the police had pretended to be him. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and it was those text messages that got, got their warrant where they were impersonating my dead best friend. Yeah, like I, I want to talk about sort of like the the the, the tactics and, and strategies that authorities use to build these cases. And I'm pretty much convinced that if we didn't have cell phones, they would not be able to prosecute these cases. I agree completely. Our our phones indict us. <laughs> like at, at the scene, like not like this is an overdose death. Like this is like a, a, a medical event. And, you know, sometimes people can be resuscitated and so, sometimes they can't. But it's like there's this sort of point at which this goes from a like death investigation, like like medical autopsy coroner wise into a homicide investigation. And I think that's when like they they go for the phone they they go through texts and and whoever is like the most the most proximate quote unquote supplier like that's the person who who they go after and it could be the person's friend best friend lover could be their parent or brother or sister it doesn't matter who it is that's like who they go after they always go after the lowest hanging fruit the level of manipulation though to pretend to be a dead person like, it just boggles my mind. Like, what are these cops? Who do they think they are? Like, what is going? Like, how do they sleep at night? I, I'm kind of rambling, but like, this is. I'm sorry, it's making me a little emotional hearing your story. This is this is just so bizarre, and 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 I I feel like, you know, you're not an anomaly. You there are a lot of people out there that have a story that's very similar to yours. Yeah, that's very true. I get people writing me. Um that, you know, heard my stuff or read my stuff because they're charged with the same thing. And they're like, how can this be a law? How is this happening? It, it was my friend. It's always a friend, always. And they're saying, I'm going to do 15 years in prison, or I get parents writing me because their children are facing 12 years in federal prison. And, um, and it breaks my heart. And I really have nothing, nothing to say to them other than I'm so sorry that this is happening, happening to you. And no, this is not fair. But yes, this is happening. And yes, they're probably going to give your baby girl 12 years in prison for her stepsister's overdose. That was one specifically egregious case where the dad wrote me. Yeah, my God, it's like un ungodly that this is sort of like seen as a solution to the opioid crisis. And, and I think like Troy to, to your question, like how do they sleep with themselves or how do they do this? Like if you talk to a prosecutor or 
like a, a homicide detective like they do think that like they're seeking justice like like i really do think that like someone has died and someone has to pay for it and like that's the sort of like brute logic of our justice system yeah like so the lead detective on my case she was quoted in a in a local newspaper the portland mercury uh, a few months after i got out because the state of oregon was proposing its own uh drug-induced homicide law and you know she was a huge proponent of it and you really you, you see that she she really thinks that this tool is going to help and you also see it with the parents of um overdose victims people who have died of overdose they still believe their child was so innocent that someone must have like made them do it like someone made them shoot up this drug my child would not do this to themselves but me you know having been addicted oh i assure you that was all me like and i never would have wanted someone else to suffer for my overdose of which i had many so there was at least like 15 opportunities where one of my friends could have got a delivery resulting in death case for my overdose but i was always resuscitated um but we know that's us. Like uh, my drug use, my choice to do too much heroin that night, to you know, to risk it, to, to to push the limit, that was me. And I would never want someone else to suffer legal consequences. Because understand, like when you're addicted to heroin, you're going through like your whole phone contacts, thinking who might be able to get me heroin because I'm dope sick and I'm miserable and I have to go to work and I'm going to get fired if I don't go to work. And so I'm texting like 29, 30 people in my phone, hoping that one of them maybe can get me some heroin. And then if they do help me out, what I've been begging them to help me out, and then I end up overdosing, they go to prison for that it's such a bizarre concept yeah this this reminds me of the reframe the blame campaign that i believe the urban survivors union started like where people who are using sort of sign like a a do not prosecute clause like i don't know like how legally binding that is or like you know police can ignore that and they can ignore family's wishes for for leniency which which i believe was the the situation in your case like justin's family you know yes of course like their hearts were broken but i don't think they wanted to see you punished is that right yeah that's correct they had a much better understanding of justin's addiction because they'd seen him dealing with it for god almost you know a decade really a little less um and so they didn't have that need to blame someone, to punish someone else for his death. Um, so they did ask for leniency, but it did not matter. And instead, his mom had to sit through his autopsy results at trial and be re-traumatized. So that is our just and fair government in action. Wow. I think, you know, some of this drug-induced homicide bullshit, you know, it intends to send a message to quote dealers and you know it it also seems like it's intended to disrupt the drug using communities to make them afraid of each other but do you think that it's actually doing anything and 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 <laughs> to sending a message to people or 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 how do you think that people actually respond to these kinds of cases yeah it definitely sends a message and the message is never call 911 during an overdose but other than that, we rely on each other. We have to create a social network 
to get heroin day in and day out. I wish, I wish that I could buy it from a pharmacy and know the dosage and have it not be adulterated with fentanyl, but that is not the case. So we have to create a social network to survive. And then they quite literally criminalize that, that network. What is most alarming for me about my specific case is the first person I knew to face a delivery resulting in death charge was Justin. And it was when our friend overdosed and died three years, almost three years to the day before Justin's death. And our friend's brother, we were friends with him and the brother, almost gave up Justin's name to the police and their mom was like, no, you know, one family losing their son was enough today and wouldn't let him snitch Justin out. But, and then he called Justin and said, man, the cops are, they they said there's this thing called delivery resulting in death. It's a 20 year mandatory minimum sentence. They know that you sold him the gram. You are in trouble. You need to lay low. And Justin just, he lost it. He freaked out. He called me, went over to his house. He was crying and panicking. Like, how can you say I killed this guy? I sold him a gram because he, he asked for a gram. I didn't kill him. And, you know, Justin laid low and it it like went away. They didn't like turn the case over to the feds for prosecution. That was in 2011. So, you know, times were different then. And so that is how our social network first heard about the delivery resulting in death law. But it was still like an abstraction, like, oh, some like weird thing that the feds have, but, you know, we're in Oregon, that law is not here. But no, it didn't change our, our behaviors at all because our behaviors were a manifestation of like the structural necessities that we lived in. And so, no, <laughs> we, we'd all been exposed to it that day in 2011, and we all continued buying and selling from each other because that was a necessity for our survival. Yeah, I mean, it, it. this just like breaks my heart on like every level to see like, you know, that vital social network get get weaponized and, and, and criminalized. But also I think what what you just laid out speaks to the, like just the total arbitrary nature of these prosecutions. Like when someone murders someone, like pulls the trigger and, and kills someone, that's such like a direct intentional action. Like like the roles can't be so easily reversed in that situation. There's like the murderer and the murder victim. But with these cases, like on any given day, roll the dice and see who the, who the quote supplier is and who the quote overdose victim is. Like those roles are so easily reversed that these cases like yeah, it just feels so arbitrary and random and which makes them just like so absurd. Yeah. So, you know, something I'll get from critics sometimes is, oh, but you knew what you were selling and was a dangerous drug. Well, look at it from my perspective. I've seen Justin, you know, inject heroin at least a thousand times and zero of those times did he overdose. So I really did not perceive the danger in what I was doing because, you know, history probability says it was going to be fine. It's what we've done every day for years of our lives. And there's just absolutely no malice. There was no, you know, I was, it's really like, I'm trying to help. I'm trying to help. Um, no intent of death. I, I just, that, that's so bizarre that the government said, you know, I'm like legally responsible for his death because I would have done anything in my power to save his life. If I would have been present, he would not have died. 
you know, but he holed up alone in his bedroom. And that is why he died. And I never wanted that. He was one of my best friends. And then they say you killed them, but, but where's the, where's the intent? And it also like, that just speaks to your empathy as a person. Like if you see someone in pain, like, of course you want to relieve it. And if you know the one thing that can relieve that pain is some of whatever someone's addicted to, like that can solve it right there on the spot. And it's like the, like that predatory dealer trope or the sort of selfish manipulative, like quote unquote drug addict trope. Like those are such bullshit because we all do care about each other. And if someone is in pain and like can't get what they need that day, like you front them, you help them out. Like you're responding as an empathetic human to another person's suffering. And like so much media portrayals and representations of addiction is like that, like fundamental empathy is like erased from the narrative. Which is such nonsense, especially with like, you know, people who use heroin, because once you've felt that withdrawal and that panic, like you never want to experience that. So most of your like mental energy is dedicated to avoiding it. And then, you know, the people really closest to you, you're going to also expend a lot of energy to help them avoid that because you know how horrible it feels. So maybe we can talk about now your time in prison a little bit. You spent five years there. Is that correct? So I spent uh, two years in county jail and then two years in federal prison. And then, and then I switched to community confinement where I was halfway house and ankle bracelet. So it's like almost five years or so under some sort of like supervision by the state. Yeah, I was in Bureau of Prisons custody, federal custody for four and a half years. But I never know how to say it, but I spent two years in jail and then two years in prison. And then I went to, con- <laughs> it's just too much. So I say, yeah, four and a half right. years, federal custody. So I guess I want to bring up this piece that you wrote for the Marshall Project. Uh, Money changed everything for me in prison. It just kind of explain like how your situation was a little bit different and and, and how that worked out for you. Yeah, so that life insurance, that veterans group life insurance I'd mentioned earlier, my mom had essentially put it into a stipend, knowing that I was a drug addict. <laughs> she did not let me have all, all of it in one lump sum. Um, so I was not able to shoot it all into my veins before the day I got arrested. I tried very hard, but I was not successful. And so I got arrested with money left. And that money made the difference between my success and me essentially ending up back in prison. Um, I signed power of attorney over to my godmother who would get the checks and deposit them in my bank account. And then whenever I wanted money, however much I wanted, she would either you know put it on the phone, add the phone numbers to the phone account on the securest phones in county jail, or you know put it on my books for commissary which is like paying, so it's my money, right? And she's just doing it online, transferring it. But they would charge enormous fees to put my own money on my books, like the touch pay fees where it's like $6 to put $20 on, which is just in, such an absurd percentage. Yeah, yeah. Who who's looting now? Like, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, again, the securest phone. So it would cost like $10 to put money on the account 
and then I could only call numbers that were on my account. So anytime I needed to add a number, a new phone number to my account, first I would have to call my aunt for $6.25, ask her to add this new phone number on my account. And then, you know, she would have to put more money on my account, pay the $10 fee to put the money on the account. And, um, and that's how I made phone calls, but, but there at Multnomah County jail in Portland, it was unlimited. So I could make as many phone calls as I wanted. It's just that they were six to 25 each, but you know, I was, I was 24 years old. My mom had just died of an overdose and my best friend died of an overdose. And they told me I was going to do 20 years in prison. Uh, and I was already suicidal before that. So, you know, I, if I wanted to make 12 phone calls in a day, I did. I didn't care about the money. Like I had, there was no long-term perspective. There was like, my life is over. Um, and so I just, I would like max out my phone calls and max out my commissary. And so I didn't like have to hustle, right? I didn't have to develop a hustle. I could just like do what I wanted to do. And that became really evident when I finally luckily got transferred to prison, which has a little bit more semblance of normality. You're not just like in a concrete room, open bay dorm for two years. You know, you, so I could like see the sunshine and see the moon and go outside and listen to music. Um, and I didn't have to like the Unicora, which is like federal prison industries. It's supposed to be the vocational training, but at FCI Dublin, the women's prison, it was outbound telemarketing. That is the vocational training. So the best paying job in the prison was outbound telemarketing, like eight and a half hours a day, five days a week. No, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. But mostly what I spent it on was communication. So email credits and phone calls. And you know, four years is a long time to be away, but it's not like I changed and developed into a separate person and my loved ones changed into developed and separate people. And then we had to like get to know each other again when I got out because I was able to keep up with them and keep connected to them and, you know, and call my grandma every Sunday and just like do normal stuff and do the video visits that were $6 each and see people's new apartments and like what, see them age because people age, you know, four years and it's not a long time, but it's enough to like, you know, my little cousins were four and then they were eight. It's, that's a big difference, but I was able to see it. And I was able to keep in touch with these people that mattered to me because I had money and all the women around me, most of which had kids couldn't call their own kids, like on their daughter's birthday, couldn't call home. And there I am on the phone, just you know, talking nonsense. Oh, what did you have for lunch? <laughs> you know, cause I'm bored and I miss, I miss my people. And it was so profoundly unfair, but there was nothing I could do about it. You can't give like, give a phone call to someone else because it does a uh, voice recognition. And so I just had to participate in and benefit greatly from a terribly unfair system. Wow. I didn't know they had voice recognition on the phones in prisons. That's dystopian. Um, so like when, when you, when you pick up the phone, you ha it does a voice recognition. So you have to say like Morgan Godwin, Morgan Godwin until it recognizes you. But then what girls will do sometimes is like after they do it on their account, they'll hand the phone off to their friend. But if you get caught doing that, you go to the shoe for 45 days and you lose your phone privileges for a year. Oh my God. This is like, like, 
this is like reminding me of like that that movie Face Off. Like you know the insane prison that's like magnetic and like they wear like the boots and they're like stuck to the, the to the ground. Like this is just like crazy surveillance, uber punishment. Like, good God! Like, how is this like helping anybody? Like it, it's it's not. Uh, like I I know. And so I would buy all those email credits. So I was just like emailing constantly and I used them kind of like my personal computer because I hate like handwriting. So I would like write my essay drafts like that, that piece. I, the first one that got co-published with Vice, I probably spent like $20 in email credits writing that and just like session after session um, after session. But the prison was not a fan, <laughs> shockingly, not a fan of me telling the whole world about the things that. I was seeing, um, and that was happening to me inside of the prison. So I got put on the special investigative services, like watch list for being an agitator. And I got interrogated over the contents of my email and threatened with shoe time. If any of it were to quote, end up on the internet. And then shortly after that, a prison guard made a joke about something he'd overheard on one of my phone calls because they were going through all of my communications with a fine tooth comb. What was the joke? Do you remember? <laughs> um, he was like, oh, is your friend still mad at you or did they forgive you yet? <laughs> I was like, you motherfucker. <laughs> like, because I'd had a spat with somebody on the jail phone. How did you um, like get in touch with with editors and and how did like your writing career sort of start while inside? That was all families against mandatory minimum sentences, fam. I responded to like a survey. I'd signed up for their newsletter and I responded to a survey and they wanted to like get more in depth because I marked yes for a veteran because technically I'm a veteran, but I was only in the Air Force for six weeks and then I got injured and I got a disability rating for that. So they called me a veteran, which is like a joke but it goes on all my paperwork. And so I marked yes, and they wanted to know Are you more. stealing Valor? Wait, wait, are you stealing Valor, Morgan? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I, you know, I have a scar in my butt. That's what it is. And it was an uh, injury incurred on active duty. So if they want to call that, at least I tried. I really did want to serve in the Air Force. I signed up. I was going to do it. Uh, and it just, it just didn't work out. So I don't like to claim my veteran status. I really don't because it's so embarrassing. But I'm also really grateful for it because I get free health care for being a military veteran, which is either the most American thing or the least American thing because it's socialized medicine. I don't know. Jury's still out. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're way more of a veteran than... Uh... I don't know, all these like phony politicians in my mind. Yeah, for real. You know, I grew up a military brat in military culture, and then I tried to join the military. So that, that you know, that's more than most people. But, um, and so that's how I got connected with FAM. And then I would just like email. And then I wrote those, what I called prison blogs, which I thought was very clever. I was in prison. And I called them plogs. Um, I was very <laughs> bored. <laughs> very bored, very bored. Uh, and so I would like do one of those like once a month or whatever. And then... Debbie Campbell from FAM, she wrote me and she said the Marshall Project was looking for like pitches for their Life Inside series. And she gave me the editor's email and he accepted my Corelinks email request. And that's how it happened. So uh, I want to go back to something you were saying earlier. You kept mentioning something called shoe time. I assume that means solitary confinement. Did you ever have to be in solitary? No, I never was put in solitary punitively. Um, I like 
solitary type conditions at Columbia County Jail on pre-classification. But no, I spoke the language of my oppressors, right? So I generally got treated better because of the specific dialect of English that I speak and can write in. And so I did not suffer the same level of scrutiny uh, for disciplinary infractions that most of my peers suffered. There are like the lesbian hunter guards. So that's a whole nother thing that could have sent me to the shoe. And I just got very lucky on. Yeah. So you identify as queer, right? Can you talk about being queer in an all women's prison? Yeah. So, you know, it took an act of Congress uh, to make prisons try to stop rape occurring in their prisons. And this is for men's prisons, okay? So it took the Prison Rape Elimination Act, literally a congressional mandate, to try to make like prison administrators prevent rape in their prisons, which is, which is what it is. But in women's prisons, it doesn't quite work the same way. There is much, much less um, non-consensual sexual activity or sexual abuse between between people in prison. So I'm not talking about prison guards and the women. That's another topic, okay, where we are more vulnerable because of our gender. But our gender does have a protective element in this regard in that an enormous percentage of women in jail and prison identify uh, on the queer spectrum, okay, LGBTI. Like 33% is the last one that I read, which is just just exponentially greater than the general population. And, and there's like different factors you can identify for that. So a lot of the women are queer already coming in. And then there's the fluidity of women's sexuality that's going to have an even higher percentage of that be engaging in some type of romantic relationship while they're inside. And specifically, Dublin was, um, was very lax. Uh, those officers hated their jobs mostly, were super burnt out. Most of them didn't care enough to enforce that rule or care, yeah, like hugging and handshaking and those things that are like highly prohibited at Oregon State Prison were completely tolerated and normalized. Physical contact is prohibited under the guise of prison rape elimination. So like literally you could go to the shoe technically for hugging someone but then you get these really overzealous prison guards and it's like a whole type. It's like a personality type. Okay. I think it's, mm, it's like the same type that votes for Donald Trump. It's like this very masculine, but maybe like pseudo religious, like maybe they're doing it for like justice or because homosexuality is a sin or they want to seek out and crush all homosexual activity in their prison. And these are the only ones that go, this is my prison. This is my unit. What are you doing on my unit? God, that, that like seeing, seeing people on, on those power trips must just be like so cringy. It's just like, what are you doing? It's, it's so horrible, especially when they would scream and cuss at you and call you bitch and shut the fuck up. And they're wearing the American flag on their sleeve representing my government. That's my flag too. That's my government too. Even like my, my brief experience, my six weeks in the Air Force, it just made it really offensive to me that they would abuse the flag in that way, that they would represent the American government in such an offensive and derogatory way. Yeah, I'm reminded of the Dostoevsky quote about how you can like judge a society about how they treat their prisoners or the conditions of their prisons. And 
it's just sadly not a surprise that people are treated this way inside America's prisons. <laughs> yeah, this one um, prison, I'll never forget what he said. He, he called his own town hall and he said, if you want to act like a man, we'll treat you like a man. If you want to act like a lady, we'll treat you like a lady. Well, what the hell does that mean? Because, you know, I'm a little androgynous presenting, like my gender presentation. I have short hair. And, and so was he, and then, and that it's the, it's the more masculine gender presentation that gets you a lot of crap when you're in prison and they just, they will just stare at you and analyze your friendships. But like the main, especially in Dublin, cause the rules were lax. It was the guards that would hold their keys cause otherwise they jangle when they walk and you can hear them coming from a long way away they would hold their keys and just like pop into rooms of girls. Like if they knew somebody had a girlfriend and obviously like the more visibly gay you are, the more likely you are to get targeted for this sort of like pop in surprise visit where they just like stealthily will like sneak up to your room and then just like kick the door open and hope to catch you having sex or kissing or something. And so, yeah, that's a super common occurrence. But Dublin was pretty lax. Like my friend in Oregon State Prison, who's also visibly gay, has had a rough time. She's gone to this shoe repeatedly. She's lost her good time. Literally done more time in prison for being gay. So it's like the last frontier of criminalized queerness. American prisons. Wow. So this is a podcast about drugs. So kind of want to go talk about um, the drug culture in prisons, uh, at least your personal experience with it. I know this is one of the arguments for why we should end the war on drugs is because we can't even keep drugs out of prisons. Why are we trying to keep them out of the country, wasting all these resources? Like, I understand that there's drug use in prisons and it's like ignorant to ex expect otherwise. But can you talk a little bit about that culture? So I saw a lot, a lot of drug use in jail. There was even fatal overdoses at Multnomah County Jail while I was there that were then later prosecuted as delivery resulting in death under the federal uh, statute. So, but in my prison where I was at, where it was a low security but ran more like a medium with about 40% Mexican nationals whose family could never visit them because they were in Mexico, I did not really see drugs at my federal prison. And this is fairly common for women's prisons to have a lot less drugs in them because we are not politically organized. So we don't have like a way of like collecting debts or making sure people pay. There's no like structural hierarchy among us. And most of them are relying on men as their primary caretakers, their husbands or their boyfriends. And guess what? Men are not as good at that. So there was just a lot less drugs. I mean, the Suboxone would come in through the mail sometimes, which isn't even that big of a deal, but now they're using it as a way to essentially like prohibit all male ever from getting into the prison, which is just making everyone suffer. Like, you know, if 0.05% of the male comes in with contraband, they're now making, you know, the other 99.5% of the people suffer by prohibiting like anything that isn't like blank white paper in a white envelope written in black ink. They can also just solve the Suboxone problem by like prescribing it to people who need it. Wow, what a concept, oh, Zach. <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not a doctor, but I do think if you give people the drugs they need, there won't be a, a black market for it. Just theory. Yeah. You know, the worst thing I saw is because 
for the last year of my sentence, I was on community co confinement because there's long pre-release periods in the federal system, but you're still a BOP inmate. So they still have to follow BOP rules, even though you're working, you're going to school, you're in your own city. So Suboxone is strictly, strictly prohibited. And if you pee dirty, you go back to prison. And I watched one man who's doctor at a prominent Portland organization um, that I'm very passionate about, like we went to bat for him trying to get an exception because he desperately needed this Suboxone. He needed it. It was his lifeline. It was his medication. It did not matter. And they sent that man back to prison. Oh my God. I mean, I, I know, I think that the ACLU and other like legal groups are trying to, to fix this and they can only sort of do it piecemeal because like our justice system, quote unquote, is really just like a patchwork of like a thousand different ones. And so, like, they sue one jail to give someone methadone. Like, that doesn't, like, make it the law of the land. It's just, like, that one jail, you know, maybe has to give methadone now. And, like, it's just it's just wild that, like, a medicine is, like, prohibited this way and treated as contraband. It's, like, infuriating. It's wild, especially when, but especially when you're out in the community. Like, how dare they? Like Yeah, like, under supervision, that's insane. Um, you know, the first time I ever went to jail, they pulled me, it was for possession and they like pulled me off of my Suboxone, even though I had a letter from my doctor and the written prescription and the medication. And they were like, F you and made me kick cold Turkey. And then on the seventh day when I still felt pretty crappy, they just like kicked me out, you know, and then I got released and it's just like, Oh, so this is the criminal justice system. Like that was my, that was my introduction. <laughs> But you're out now. So what's going on now? What do you what's it like to get out and find yourself in the world again? And like, kind of, can you talk about your hopes and aspirations? Yeah, so getting out is like one giant identity crisis, because everything you were for the previous four years, you are no longer. And you're so you're trying to redetermine who you are, what makes you you, how you take your coffee, <laughs> like just really basic things. Um, but I had like a list, right? A list of things that I was going to do and I followed it rigidly. So I had the first year and a half I was out, I, I did like 16 hour days. I would go to school, I would go to work, I would go all to my, to my meetings in between. And, um, and I wanted to prove them wrong because like the whole system, it's just set up waiting for you to fail. And it was a lot of stressors, especially when I was still at the halfway house, that was very hard for me because I was going to school at Portland State University, which is like the super you know, progressive university and I'm studying public health and developing like some semblance of normality. There would still be like really weird moments, like at work, my coworkers would be like talking about a meme or some pop culture reference. And I never had any idea what they were talking about because I hadn't had access to the internet for four years. And so I felt like really awkward. Like I didn't understand my own culture anymore. I was disconnected from my culture. So I just really delved into work, 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 work. And, um, and that paid off, you know, I mean, I did get like pretty bad burnout and tendonitis in my hands from the job I was doing. But other than that, like I won the Gilman scholarship. So like one of my goals was to do a study abroad and really why I wanted to do it is because it was the only way that the, they would let me leave the country while on federal supervision. And then I won a federal government, a state department scholarship. And so I brought that to my PO and they ended up letting me go study public health in Argentina 
while on federal supervision. <laughs> Got him. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, since I was, they'd already let me out of the country, then I like traveled around. I went to Peru. Three weeks of my program sent me to Uruguay because they have full drug decriminalization. So I was studying that there with their legalization of marijuana system. And then I also uh, went to like Rio de Janeiro just because I could. <laughs> and then came home. And then the very next day after I had been gone for three months, effectively like not on supervision, completely free, you know, studying. And then I did an internship uh, with the network of civil liberties organizations, which is super cool. I loved it. I was doing international human rights. I felt so free and, and my experiences made me capable. It was the first time I didn't feel highly stigmatized. Like the, the NGO, the International NGO Human Rights Organization that I was working for had me give like a presentation on the American criminal justice system and the prison system and conditions of our prisons. And this was like to like a bunch of international lawyers. And I was like, oh my gosh, maybe my prison experience like isn't the worst thing that ever happened to me. Well, it was, but maybe I can turn it around. And um, I loved that experience. And then I came back home to Portland and the very next day I had to like get patted down, pull my pants down and pee into a cup while someone stared at my private parts. And you're just like, what the hell is this? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Wow. That's like such like a jarring clash of your worlds where it's like in this one moment you're, you know, schooling international lawyers and traveling around the world and like living your dreams basically at post incarceration. And then like in the next minute you're like, like they sort of drop the hammer and like show you once again that like, like, no, like we control you. Yeah. They showed me who was boss. Um, so I got really depressed after I came back cause I was still so tightly under their thumb, you know, and I was supposed to be on federal supervision until 2022. Um, I just kept doing what I was doing. I was, you know, did a few like radio interviews, wrote some op-eds, got some stuff published, kept going to school at Portland State, you know, and then I'd have to go like UA at the halfway house because that was the halfway, that was like the UA location. And then you go in there and you see men with bald heads that have swastikas tattooed on their head that like say the N-word in open conversation. What the fuck? And they have segregated dinner tables at the halfway house. Like, this is the white table, this is the black table. And then they, they split the Hispanics up by affiliation. And so it was just like, just culture clash, right? But yeah, I just kept doing all that and volunteering and community service. And then I got a public policy internship and I started getting into the Oregon State Legislature, getting like way more political, way more active politically. And then I ended up getting confirmed as a commissioner to the Oregon Alcohol and Drug Policy Commission. And then I did an internship for a federal judge. <laughs> and then I applied to get off of supervision, the statutory minimum. My one-year mark, I applied, and they let me go. They kicked me off. They're sick of me. They hate me. Yeah, so in this uh, Marshall Project piece, you kind of talked about how, you know, you're an outlier. You're a success story, according to the Brewer of Prisons or whatever. Um, and I, I just really like this line that you ended with, quote, just ask yourself, why is successful reentry after prison exceptional instead of standard? And, you know, I, I'm impressed by your humility about this whole situation, this trauma that has been inflicted upon you by our institutions. 
and 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 how that you're using your platform as a way to say like yeah i mean i made the most of my situation but that was privilege and i think that's powerful that you're doing that yeah i'm just it's because it's because like the the other people they're not abstractions to me i see their faces i see them on facebook i see the women going back to prison Okay, because they did not have the same access to resources that I had. And that's just so terribly, terribly unfair. And so it's a combination of just like privilege, white privilege, the way my mom taught me to talk. Okay, so like my dialect of English and how I can write that in a compelling way so I can get my needs met. I can navigate bureaucracies, okay? So like I can navigate the VA, I can get my healthcare, I, I get military benefits for attending school, not from my own service through being a dependent of a person who uh, died from a service-connected disorder because my mom's COPD was service-connected and it contributed to her overdose. And so I get benefits for that. But so like all these benefits that I've reaped that yes, I did have to work for, but my starting point, my foundation was way higher. And that is privilege. And that is not, it's just not fair. And then the ex, the people that need more help get barriers instead, just one after the other. I don't know how many people I've talked to when I tell them that last summer I traveled around South America, they go, but you're a felon. I thought we couldn't get a passport. And it breaks my heart because people just believe that. We've been told for so long, like, you're nothing, you're worthless, you're a criminal, you're a felon. We internalize that, and then we don't even try. And that's, I think that's the point of their game. They don't even want us to try. And um, so I'm just trying to show, show people what's possible and then change, like, the structural things that put literal barriers in front of us. Like, I cannot get in an apartment. I cannot rent an Airbnb because of my criminal record. Can you vote? Yes. Oregon has full voting restoration as soon as you're not physically incarcerated. Tight. That's good, at least. Are you going to vote for Trump? <laughs> <laughs> funny, funny, funny. Um, <laughs> no, it's not funny. I'm sorry. It was bad. Uh, no, but a shocking amount of people who have been to prison are going to vote for Trump. I can tell you this from my Facebook because of the First Step Act, he, he fixed the, the justice system. <laughs> More like the white people that go to prison kind of fit the demographic, if you think about it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. This has been a um, pretty heartbreaking conversation, um, but I want to kind of leave on like a hopeful note. Like, what do you see about this moving forward and, and these drug homicide laws... Th th that are used to just destroy people's lives for, for such a petty reason, just to punish drug users. Like, how, what can people do about these laws, uh, if anything? And, and, and what do you see um, in the future? The, I believe that the majority of these laws are now being prosecuted by states who have been implementing them at a breakneck pace. And, uh, you know, state legislators are actually very accessible, like, people really, they can reach out to the say, say no, especially if your state doesn't have one yet, don't allow it to be, get introduced. Go, go to the hearing, testify before Congress, say no, tell them how this will actually impact human beings, human lives. We all have the same goal, right? When we see the drug crisis, we want to save lives. 
So if we're willing to do whatever it takes to save lives, let's do things that actually save lives. Okay. I know everybody, it was just this clamoring for people are dying. You have to do something. And so politicians found something, but it was not something effective. Uh, I think we will look back on this period uh, with shame. It will be a blight like so many things in American history. But I think if the last month is any, as any sign, we are capable of rapid shifts in, in political will and public opinion. And I hope that we can gear some of this towards these drug-induced homicide laws that are destroying people's lives, okay? Addiction already constrains human potential, but incarceration just obliterates it. And the whole community is affected, okay? For every person that's incarcerated, they have a family, they have friends. And so that's it. I mean, we, we have solutions. We, we have evidence-based solutions. Let's focus on those. Let's not wait till someone is dead to invest resources in their life. Right. It's like, let's stop waging a war on drugs and actually like prevent overdoses because the war on drugs does not fucking do that. And one thing I just want to plug is the, the lab that I do work with that I think, Morgan, you're maybe starting to get into a little bit too with, with Leo. They uh, wrote a sort of drug-induced homicide defense toolkit, and we will plug a link to that. And basically, it, it helps defense attorneys like understand how these cases work and, and you know, equip them with a defense for their clients to, to fight these charges. But obviously that's like, you know, quite literally playing defense. Like these, these laws, as you said, are being reinvigorated or the, 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 their teeth are being sharpened all over the country. And yeah, so it's important to be on the lookout for wherever you live, you know, does, does your state have this law? And if not, you know, how can you make sure that it doesn't ever have one? But also, like your whole story shows, is even if your state doesn't have a law, there is a federal statute, and the feds can come in at any minute and build one of these cases, even if your state doesn't have the law. Yeah, and there's not much we can do about that. So just, you know, elect progressive DAs that won't charge these things like homicide. But as public will and public opinion shifts and you know, awareness about like the nature of addiction without that American compulsion to blame someone in a punitive sense, you know, like punishment for the sake of punishment comes at a cost. And that cost is actual healing, like community-based healing. So yeah, we're, we're up against, you know, it feels like an uphill battle right now, but I really believe that, that in our lifetimes that we are going to see a rapid shift on the drug war. I believe that. Yeah, I mean, I, I do too. And like even polling about like, like sort of crack era mandatory minimums, like the public does not like that shit. Like in the 80s and the 90s when like, you know, it was sort of like a, a bipartisan competition to see who was tougher and who can enact like the, the, the harshest laws with the lengthiest prison sentences, like that sort of arms race is, is over and I think people generally and like, you know, take polling with a grain of salt, obviously. But if you go look up what how the public views, you know, should people be incarcerated or receive treatment or do you favor mandatory minimum sentences? Like people do not like this shit 
at all. And we just need a government that actually responds to the public will. And like, we don't have that all the time, especially right now. The vision is there and, and people know what they want and don't want. And it, yeah, now we're at this point where like the space is open to actually like envision something new and build it. And I think that's like, seriously, I do think that's happening. Like I could be delusional, like this could just be another cycle, but I don't know. Like I feel like, and we talked about this on our last episode with, with, with Ricky Bluthenthal, like I do think that like the current generation of, of abolition is like, I don't know, like like building a foundation that, that like has not been there in my whole life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then eyes on Oregon in November, we have a ballot measure going up that could uh, pave the way. Yeah, I was just going to mention that that Oregon has this ballot measure that's going to decriminalize all drugs. You also will probably have a ballot measure that's going to legalize psilocybin therapy. Uh, it was just announced today that the campaign got enough signatures to be on the ballot. So there's there's just a lot of important drug reform measures happening in Oregon and across the country this year, even in spite of the pandemic. That gives me hope, like because some some cannabis reform laws kind of failed this year, uh, which was disappointing, and they blamed it on the pandemic. But other other uh, initiatives are are making lots of progress, and you see the people in the streets uh, demanding change and. That I see us moving in a new direction, and I always talk about this in terms of evolution. Like, evolution is very painful and chaotic and random, but something emerges from it that is orderly and functional. And I think that that's where we're headed. At least I hope so. I would love that. That that is a great explanation for our chaos because it gives us optimism for the future, for our present chaos. Though. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah. Seriously, and we'll definitely need to have you back as Oregon, uh, you know, votes on these measures and and start to see this change, you know, manifest. So thank you so much for just, you know, talking about your life and, and for being open to talking about it. This is like incredibly uh, intense stuff. And I, I just hope that, you know, people listening just like, I don't know, just see that like the system wants to beat you down and like you can fight back. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I this is how I make sense of all the stuff from my past. I just talk about it a lot and uh, hope that something good will come from it. Hope that, you know, there was a purpose within the madness. And uh, we'll have links to some of your writing in the show notes as well as uh, links to your Twitter. People can find you at Morgan Godvin. That's M-O-R-G-A-N-G-O-D-V-I-N. Thanks again for being on. Thank you, guys. Bye, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening to Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast. We're also on other social medias like Facebook and YouTube. We actually just created a new Facebook group. You can find it by searching for Narcotica Community. It's a place for discussion of the show and drug use in general, in addition to places like our Patreon page. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Marath, Zachary Siegel, and Troy Farah. Our theme music is by Glassboy. Additional music is by Poddington Bear. And I'm your co-producer, Garrett. 
if you're a fan of our show and like what we do here, consider supporting us on Patreon. There's a lot of really good places to take your money right now, like the ACLU, NAACP, Doctors Without Borders. And so that's why we really appreciate the people who choose to support us on Patreon. Thank you for helping keep this show free from corporate influence. Give us a follow where you get your podcast. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, you name it. And be sure to have a very nice night.